Hello. On today's episode of Forge and Anvil, we will discuss psychedelics with author Lewis Ungit. We'll talk all about how users of these drugs have experienced seeing otherworldly beings. We'll ask the question, are these aliens, elves, angels, or demons? We'll also touch on how globalists desire to popularize psychedelics and why that is. I have a theory, and we'll see if I'm correct. As I mentioned a moment ago, we are joined by first-time guest Lewis Unget. So, Lewis, Lewis, please uh, tell the audience who you are and what you do. How's it going, guys? Um, thanks for having me on. Oh, my name is uh, Lewis Unget. I am a uh, author of uh, of books. I have a, a Substack and uh, just write on a lot of different subjects, from culture to um, religion to um, all kinds of strange stuff, including psychedelics and AI that I was talking to you about earlier. Um, my background, I have an engineering degree. I also have a, a business and finance degree, and I have a uh, seminary degree. So I've got a pretty diverse, uh, diverse background. And uh, it's been helpful for me in thinking through a lot of these subjects that I write about, um, just being able to think take an approach of looking at things from a variety of different backgrounds. So awesome. Well, welcome. We're glad you're here. Yeah. And thanks. as always, I'm joined by my regular co-host, Michael Aper. Hello, friends. I'm a student of scripture. I want to see the righteousness of God restored to his people. And I think we can maybe do a part of that here. Awesome. That's the goal. All right, so normally we start off our streams going straight into the stories uh, that are happening in the news. Um, but uh, today we're actually going to talk uh, more about uh, Lewis's book, Return of the Dragon. Um, and uh, we're going to kind of use that to set the stage for the remainder of our conversation. So, uh, Lewis, can you tell us um, why you wrote this book and um, what on earth is this dragon that you're referring to? Yeah, well, this book was not something I ever planned on writing. It was one of those books that just kept the, the subject kept bumping into me, um, kept, uh, confronting me every, every time I kind of turned around, I kept seeing it. But, um, so a few years ago, my wife had seen a documentary on a drug called DMT, um, dimethyltryptamine. Um, that's the active ingredient in an ancient, uh, Mesoamerican drug called ayahuasca. Um, and she said, Hey, you should check this out. This is pretty, uh, pretty crazy stuff. And she kind of described it, but like, I didn't really take it too seriously. didn't really even think about it. Um, but it registered in my mind. And then, um, over and over again, people kept mentioning it, mentioning it. And then I heard Joe Rogan talk about it. I read a, a author called, uh, Graham Hancock who wrote America before and some other books, um, that, he's really into ayahuasca and the more i learned about it the more i'm like i should have paid attention to this in the first place like this is on this is a crazy thing so the the deal with dmt that is so remarkable in my mind is how consistent and strange the reports are of the people that take it so when people take dmt they all almost always see this heavenly geometry and the way they describe it is looks like mesoamerican art so you think of it like a, a rug from mesoamerica where it's got the zigzags and all that stuff or you you think of the side of the temple where it's got um or 
pyramid or whatever, where it's got the zigzag step lines, those kind of things. That's what people say they see while they're on ayahuasca or on DMT. And I'll use those terms interchangeably. They're a little bit different where DMT is a shorter high, um, you know, if you take the synthesized drug, but I'm going to use them interchangeably. But um, the um, other big thing, the, the even, cra I guess, crazier thing is that people all report a large percentage, maybe 90% of the people that take DMT or ayahuasca report that they see entities. Um, and those entities often come in animal human hybrids. Um, but those entities, the crazy thing is, so you say, okay, well, they hallucinated, they dreamed or whatever. We've all had dreams, but people that take DMT, they'll come back down and they'll say that was real. That was as real, if not more real than the world I'm living in. And that entity is still in existence, even though I'm no longer high, even though, I, you know, people will be no longer high and they'll say that was a real thing. And I heard that and I'm like, that's, that's mind blowing. Like, it's crazy. And it's, it would be one thing if it was all like drug addicts, crazy people, but like intelligent, well-educated people, people like Graham Hancock, uh, doctors like Rich Rossman, um, you know, popular figures that, you know, Joe Rogan or whoever, like people that we all kind of know a little bit and we talk to and they um, say these things and they don't say them like they're crazy people and they're otherwise trustworthy people. Um, there's a line from Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe um, where C.S. Lewis, um, he's talking about, you know, the, the um, Lucy comes back and she says she saw the wardrobe and uh, they, her brothers and sisters think she's crazy. And they go and talk to the professor and the professor says, well, is she in the habit of lying? And they say, no. And they say, well, why are you assuming, or he said, why are you assuming that she's lying or why are you assuming she's crazy? Why, why not believe her? And so I kind of went at it with that approach of like, maybe they're not crazy. Maybe they're not lying. Maybe it's real. And if it is real, who is it? What is it? You know, they're, they're encountering entities. What is it? And so, sometimes you'll hear them talk about aliens or you'll hear them talk about, um, you know, they'll have a variety of entities that they say they're, they're talking about um, elves, et cetera. But like I said, they all say they see these things. Now where you asked where the dragon came from, the, the interesting thing about the dragon is that one of the main things people see while they're on ayahuasca and other psychedelic drugs, my book is not purely psychedelic drugs uh, or not purely ayahuasca. It covers all of psychedelic drugs. Um, but one of the things people see regularly is the serpent. Um, that's a very common theme. Um, Graham Hancock actually has a quote that I include in my book, something along the lines of, I've met her many times, a woman, human hybrid, that is named mother ayahuasca and that term mother ayahuasca a lot of people talk about um so that's kind of where the genesis of the book came from that discovery of what dmt is but then as i studied that i learned like what scripture said what historic christians said what the ancient near east that scripture was born out of what they did with drugs and psychedelics and what various societies throughout history including mesoamerica did with drugs and it's um it's a shocking the subtitle of my book is the shocking way drugs and religion shape people and societies and i titled that because it did shock me like it was just a shocking history like i was really surprised by everything i found and the themes are pretty consistent and pretty pretty crazy so wow
Wow. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to, I want to hang for a bit on, um, some of the visions. Um, so what do you think is significant about some of the geometry that you mentioned that these individuals see when they're using this? So I, th I think, um, number one, it's just interesting that for me, for me and Graham Hancock talks about this as well. Um, that it is at least kind of a hint that maybe at some point in time in history, they were using similar drugs, right? So it's, it's, it is, if everybody that does it sees these things while they're high, for me, it's a link to that. Now, what is it they're seeing? Um, my own theory, and um, I, I try in my book to like speak like I'm not theorizing anything. Like I try like just the facts kind of. Um, and I go through everything as factually and without kind of my own opinions as much as possible. But my own personal opinion on those geometries would be similar to what Graham Hancock says, where he, he thinks they're geometries from the other dimensions. So uh, I talk about the fact that there's within quantum physics, there's multiple dimensions within various pagan religions there's multiple dimensions and even within christianity we believe in multiple dimensions we wouldn't say dimensions we would say heaven we'd say hell we'd say um you know these these other aspects of our created universe that we can't see spiritual dimension or whatever but we we also have that view and so my own opinion is that there's we're seeing something that is um, not 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 normally seen within our three-dimensional world is it's kind of a, a fourth dimension or or fifth dimension or, or whatever you want to call it hmm. so the natural question is why is that something that's real and not just a, a continuous hallucination that is chemically introduced because of this strain of chemical and the way that it interacts with your cognition Sure. Yeah. And that's one of the, th I spend a lot of time trying to like explain why I don't think that's the case um, in my book. Um, there's a lot of, there's a, a variety of reasons. Um, one reason is that some of the stuff that happens can't really be explained um, by um, natural causes. People will, one person will see one thing and then another person that's not even high will see that same thing as they're waking up from a dream or whatever and and they'll re relate notes or um people will be able to communicate i talk about the fact that the uh ayahuasca for a while was called telepathine because so many people claimed at least that they could communicate independently as they're um uh just through thoughts as they're as they're both high together um so those are the the um other other things like out-of-body experiences graham hancock actually talks about this where he says he was able to um in in various conditions actually leave his body and see things around him that he wouldn't have otherwise been able to see and that's a normal reaction so those kind of paranormal reports i mean maybe everybody's lying right like maybe there's no truth but there has been some scientific um efforts to, to back some of that up um, but then, that, so that's one piece is like, if you take, if people aren't lying, there's some stuff that can't be explained naturally. Um, but the the second thing I point out in, in the book is that when we talk about like science, so like we, we're, we're, um, we say we want to follow the scientific method on something. So you say, okay, 
is, you know, we test gravity, for example. We say, uh, what's the coefficient of gravity? We drop a brick and we, we observe the brick falling and, and we make measurements and those kind of things. Well, that all assumes like our brain works and that all assumes that what we're seeing is true. And really what science is ultimately is the observation of something. So if I, similar to Lucy in, in Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe, if I say, hey, I took this drug and I saw something that's real that I'm 100% sure is real and is not fake and I'm not even high anymore, like I'm perfectly sober, first time I did the drug, I'm sure that it's real. Um, and you said, well, prove it to me. And I said, well, take this drug and you'll see it too. And you say, well, I can't do that. I just need to do it based on your word. Like in my mind, the, like the, that observation is part of the science behind it, where if you take a sane, sober, trustworthy person and they say that they see it, like I don't, I'm not one to like question what they're seeing. Um, another um, thing that I think kind of provides evidence for this is is the fact that some of these things are so consistent over time. I mean, the book is called The Return of the Dragon because people see these same entities and these entities throughout history have made these same demands. So there's like this consistency where we're kind of getting to know who we're talking to here. Like they're, they're saying the same thing over and over again. And um, so, you know, it's, there, there's that piece um, that I, I believe as well. Um, now, the other thing I point out in my book is that with, when, when you talk about consciousness, consciousness is not um, actually something you can observe with science. Um, that's the, the wild thing about consciousness. People think you can, they'll do brain scans, they'll see something moving, they'll say, oh, I'm seeing consciousness, but you actually can't because, and even atheists like Sam Harris will admit this. Um, his wife, Annika Harris wrote a book called on, I believe it's called on consciousness. I quote it at length in my book. I also have an article on my website, but consciousness, um, if you think about the fact that, um, so how do you know, like, how do I know you're conscious? Well, you're looking at me, right? Or you're smiling when I tell a joke or you cry when something sad happens. That's how I know you're conscious. Well, then the next question is, could I create a robot that does those same things and is not conscious? Could I create something that does those same things that's not conscious? And if I scanned the brain of that robot and it was doing something similar to what you're doing right now, you know, if I scanned your brain when you laughed at a joke or cried when something sad happened, et cetera, you, you can't. And that's that's what like Annika Harris points it out. You can't observe consciousness. So there's a real problem when we start talking about like, hey, I want to see the science behind consciousness. There is no science behind consciousness. It's, it's invisible to science. Um, so that, that's another piece. And then the other thing I talk about, so like Michael Pollan in, and I'm sorry, this is a long rant, but like Michael Pollan in his book, um, How to Change Your Mind, has a whole chapter on what happens in the brain when you're high. And it basically boils down to, um, he says, when people take psychedelics, their default no, neural node network uh, shuts off. So that, so it's a shutting off of that, that uh, network in your brain, which is kind of like what your brain is normally doing. So that whole thing shuts off. And so some atheists might say, well, hey, there's proof that, you know, it's just a chemical reaction. But what I point out is like, that's actually not, that's, that's no more proof of, of saying that it's a chemical reaction than saying when I take this mushroom, it's that, right? So there's, there's in, in it's, it describes the mechanism. So if you think about like the idea of putting eardrops in your ear, your ears plugged up with wax. Um, so you put the eardrops in, it dissolves the wax, the wax pours out, all of a sudden you hear things you couldn't otherwise hear. Um, 
well, could we say, well, you're not really hearing that. That's just the earwax. We know the mechanism is the earwax dripping in as, as that pouring out. Um, you can't, you can't really say that, and especially not on something like consciousness that's unobservable. So there's a lot of reasons that all come together. And then on top of that, I would say we have no philosophical or theological or otherwise reason to, to disbelieve it other than atheism, right? And atheism is like, the, we're all kind of like natural atheists in, in this world. Like we, even Christians tend to be like skeptical of spiritual things. But if you throw out atheism and you say the spiritual world is real, there's no like philosophical reason why you couldn't contact that world. Um, and, you know, I think that's the thing that we have to kind of get our, our arms around is like, if that world's real, which as Christians, we say it is, um, why couldn't these things be true? Why couldn't these people's honest accounts be accurate accounts? Yeah. Now, in your book, you even mentioned that uh, a lot of the atheists that have been users of these kind of um, substances have actually wound up at least uh, not necessarily becoming believers, but maybe becoming more agnostic. Is that right? No, they reject atheism. So a majority, that's the other crazy thing. So they do studies on DMT. They'll take atheists and they'll put them on DMT. They take the DMT, they come out and they say, actually, that was real. I'm not an atheist anymore. A majority of atheists. So we want to talk about like a, a skeptical third party. You say, okay, I don't believe you. This is the person you want to bring in to like see if it's fake or not. They come in and the majority of them say, oh, that was real. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so when it comes to the actual visions and hallucinations, Michael, do you have any thoughts in terms of like the spiritual realm as well as kind of what Lewis was saying about the different dimensions and um, whether or not this is a real place? And if it is, we should theoretically be able to make contact with it? Well, there's no doubt that there is, in fact, a spiritual realm. If we want to believe the Bible at all, that's clear enough. Even, you know, people like to think when they watch exorcisms or stuff like that and films that are based on those things, that it's like, oh, that's not Christian because that's evil and it's not real. And you tell your kids to make them feel better. Don't worry about it, honey. It's not real. Well, in actuality, it is real. And we see that even in in First uh, Samuel when Saul, King Saul, is at his wit's end and he wants Samuel to tell him what to do. But Samuel's dead. So he goes to a necromancer, uh, the witch doctor, and, and this witch of Korah calls upon Samuel's spirit and Samuel says, what are you doing? This is not how it's supposed to be. So we have examples of, of otherworldly, other um, dimensions, perhaps. Something that's coming to mind even, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Lewis, is that you're talking about this continuity of experiential observations while on DMT or other potential hallucinogenics, which I'd like to talk about that more as well. But to stay on track, I'm not as familiarized with that realm of hallucinogenic drugs or psychedelic drugs, I should say. What I am more informed on is, um, unfortunately, by proxy, I've been well acquainted with the process of death. And when elderly people or otherwise near the end oftentimes they also experience other dimensional or otherworldly things they interact with individuals that are not present by our perception and 
are able seemingly to break through a veil between our world and a more spiritual essence. And I had, I've had firsthand experience with that, that I believe to be true. So I want to know, Lewis, what do you think about that as a, as a relevant point to what you're discussing? I absolutely believe that. Um, there's a book called The Soul After Death. It's by a Eastern Orthodox uh, priest uh, named Seraphin Rose, um, where he talks about people's near-death experiences and talks about um, kind of what they come back and they report and that kind of spiritual estate. And the I read that after I wrote my book. And the similarities between that and what's in my book is was mind blowing. I mean, like it just like I was like, oh, it's the same same thing between those. Um, but I I think to get back to exactly what you said, I I don't think it just happens after death. I don't think it just happens on on drugs. I do believe, like you said, with Samuel in the Old Testament and the medium, um, and occultists, um, like if you study the theosophists, um, like Rudolf Steiner. Um, and kind of the science science behind some of that occult that they started to work on. You look at Aleister Crowley or Carl Jung, um, that they have similar experiences, similar reports, similar things where they say, I'm confident this was true. Um, I'm confident I went into and very smart, intelligent, accomplished people saying those things. So um, I think that other realm, and we, I do want to talk about I don't think it's good, but I think that other realm can be contacted through a variety of ways. But I think psychedelics is one of them. And another thing I didn't bring up because I kind of I'm walking through this, how I walk through it in the book. And I don't want to just jump to 10 biblical principles why you shouldn't do uh, psychedelics. But the Bible is very clear on this. And I, I, I spent a full chapter talking about that. And that's an interesting that's an interesting part of it. Um, but I do, I do think you can see into that realm through a variety of different practices and maybe in old age, maybe in prayer. And I think, you know, it's, it's worth noting that spiritual dimension, it, it can be a good spiritual dimension. And I think it can be a bad spiritual dimension. Yeah. And I think depending on what brings you there can be a, a big difference on which one that is. Yeah, I've spoken numerous times with hospice staff in uh, in facilities where a lot of people die, and it's not as if everyone gets to have peaceful conversations with their loved ones. It's very often an alternative route that we'd rather not think about, as far as growing yeah. old and being alone in a in a place with your wretched damnation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, and in, in the book, there's there's so many things in your book. It's really well written, and I highly recommend any any viewer to pick up a copy. Um, of course, um, but in your book, you do uh, bring up necromancy um, and um, and witchcraft, and you kind of compare um, uh, compare it to pharmacia. So I mean, maybe first we should start by having you kind of give us a a uh, a bit of a background on what is pharmacia and how does it pertain to the church yeah so funny uh my i mentioned i have a seminary degree and so i took greek and i should know the coin of greek or the bible um and i do to some degree i wasn't gonna got a solid b in that class but um <laughs> it's tough yeah but as i was um 
you know, as I was studying this subject, I mentioned kind of had kept coming in my radar. I studied it and just all of a sudden I was like, I wonder what the Bible says about drugs. And so I just Googled, what does the Bible say about drugs? And of course it searched English translations and pretty much all the answers were about alcohol, right? So like be sober, you know, don't drink too much, fool drinks too much, blah, blah, blah. And so like all the answers came back as like alcohol related. And in my mind, initially I'm like, okay, so drugs and alcohol kind of on the same level, same argument for or against, which a lot of Christians think you can drink alcohol. So like, why, why don't Christians do drugs? Um, and then it came to me, fortunately th through the Greek, that when you search the Greek of the Bible for the word drugs, it pops up all over the place. It's throughout. And the reason it, it, and the word you mentioned is pharmakia. And the reason that, I mean, think about that word just for a second. Pharmakia is where we get the word pharmacy or it's where we get the word pharmaceutical. Um, so big pharma, that's, it's, it's the Greek word for drugs. Um, and you say, okay, well, why wasn't it in the English translation? And the reason it's not in the English translation is almost always they translate it witchcraft, um, sorcery, um, and something along those lines of necromancer or whatever, like they'll, they'll translate it something in the shamanistic realm. And so I went to my lexicons, I pulled my lexicons open and all of them, hundred percent of them for the first and second, maybe third definition, all of them said drugs of some sort, but it almost was always was drugs for spiritual purpose of, of some sort. Some will say it is drugs in a magical practice, or some will say as drugs as part of witchcraft, or some will say casting a spell using drugs or whatever, but almost all of them have this drug component to that uh, translation. So it's not a case when you think about, I, I get suspicious when people say, well, the translation's wrong, you know, it should be this or whatever. Um, and there's some legitimacy to that because translators are great at Greek, better than I am. And they choose words very carefully and they do so often very well. And a lot of times when you're translating, I, I don't, I'm okay with Greek. I'm decent with Spanish. And when I translate stuff from Spanish, a lot of times it really is a choice. So if you think about translating from English, the word bark into Spanish, which honestly, now that I said that I froze up, I don't know what it is in, in Spanish, but you translate that in and you have a choice, right? It could either be the, the skin of a tree or it could be the sound a dog makes, right? And those are very different. And depending on the context, those are very different choices. In the case of pharmacia, that's not the case. It is not a translator's choice. There's one definition and that is the shamanistic use of drugs. Um, and the reason they say sorcery usually is because in the ancient world, sorcery, witchcraft, et cetera, almost always had a pharmaceutical aspect to it. Think of the medicine, man. Think of, um, actually think of more modern witch stories. We think of the woman in the woods with the, with the um, cauldron mixing a variety of ingredients together. Um, that drug component component to shamanism is almost universal in the world. Like almost everywhere you go, there's a drug component to the shamanism. And that's what the Bible's warning against. That's what the Bible is saying, don't do. And when you look up what the Bible says about pharmacia, 
the warnings are insane. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, in the in the New Testament, Paul says those that do pharmakia will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, Book of Revelation says pharmakia will lead whole nations astray. Um, you know, it says um, outside the gates, those in hell will be the ones that practice pharmakia. Um, so, and then the other thing I point out is there's a, a Greek translation in the Old Testament uh, called the Septuagint that was incredibly popular in the day of the apostles. Um, and actually they quote it often when you see a quote of, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, often it's from the Septuagint. Um, and the Septuagint, if you go through that and you look for the word pharmakia, it, I mean, the, the warnings against pharmakia and the Septuagint are insane. Let's do not allow the practice, the person that practices pharmakia to live. Um, often in the Septuagint, there's tying together of pharmakia and um human sacrifice um so you know it, it says do not allow the person that practices pharmakia or the person that puts their kids in the fire to um you know do do not practice pharmakia do not put your kids in the fire the, those kind of things so yeah it's um the warnings in the bible about this are pretty breathtaking and for me that was the other big switch so i i mentioned kind of all learning about all this stuff and then when I got to the Bible and I'm like, oh, the whole thing kind of tied together. So for me, that was in just in my own personal learning on the subject. It was the big kind of twist, the big reveal. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's really interesting because, you know, not too many people even understand uh, that translation with, uh, you know, with pharmakia and just uh, the fact that the, the Septuagint actually had that one working definition that that was referenced so many times. Um, for me, that was definitely something new that I hadn't, I hadn't heard before. Um, now you mentioned in your book, um, that, um, these hallucinations are oftentimes associated to, um, are very comparable to individuals that have like mental illnesses. Can you expand upon that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, the um several of the i, I kind of went through the start off the book um going through just kind of what academia knows about us uh, um psychedelics and has done study wise and unfortunately or fortunately or whatever you want to call it it's a lot they're doing a lot more studies recently so johns hopkins is doing a bunch of studies new york university is doing a bunch of studies university of wisconsin madison is doing a bunch of studies but um, I, I had a couple of quotes in there from researchers who um, were in kind of psychiatry as a whole. And one of the things they point out is that you can't miss the parallels between the two. Um, the, the main difference is that, you know, when you when the um, when the crazy person has their issue, and I'm sorry for using a non-PC word, but when the crazy person has their issue, they never come down from it. They never get sane again, usually. I mean, sometimes with the right medication or whatever, but like in other than that, there's a lot of parallels. The stuff they say they see, the stuff they encounter, the stories they tell, et cetera, often are, are very similar. Um, and I didn't put this in the book at all, but I do, did find it interesting that one of the critiques that I've heard atheists say about the Bible is that, um, like the New Testament, Jesus casting out demons from individuals, 
Um, I've heard atheists say, well, just they didn't know what what um, insanity, what mental illness was in the first century. And therefore, you know, they thought it was demons, but it really was mental illness. And I, I've, I used to argue with atheists all the time. Um, and when I kind of realized there was that parallel and especially the whole theme of my book, I found that very interesting that, oh, maybe there's more of a, a tie in there than we thought. And kind of if, if you think about um, what psychedelics are doing, if they're rearranging kind of our brain chemistry, the way our brain works and allowing us therefore to see something real, um, it might make sense that someone that just naturally had messed up brain chemistry is able to see something that the rest of us can't see, you know, or hear something the rest of us can't hear. Yeah, that's an interesting can you, thought. Can Go you ahead, explain Michael. maybe in more detail the line that you draw on what psychedelics are included on the list of, of what could transpose this sort of experience? Because, you know, within the realm of psychedelics, there's everything from marijuana to what you're saying to the active DMT. But you've, there's also a lot of experiences of, you know, people dropping acid and suddenly the walls are crawling and they're melting and they see horrifying things that are yeah. maybe a, a wild exaggeration of their imagination. At least that's what is often described as. So how do you differentiate the line or the boundaries of what you would consider to be a realistic understanding of an alternate realm? Um, so when it comes to just the word pharmakia and what it means in, in the Bible, um, the and I while we were talking here, I was able to pull up the lexicon that I quoted in my book, but it says one who prepares and uses drugs for magical purposes or ritual purposes, witchcraft, sorcerer, poisoner, magicians. Um, another definition is the use of drugs for any kind of magical effect or sorcery or magic. Um, so the biblical word would just be any kind of drug use for spiritual purposes. So if we were to sit around and say, hey, let's try and contact ghosts and we'll we'll get high on marijuana or we'll get high on whatever, we'll sniff paint. Um, that would, I think, be covered under pharmakia is any kind of tr attempt to modify your brain chemistry in order to see into that other realm so that you can then you know, in the case of a witch doctor, you might be able to heal somebody or find out where the enemy's troops are or whatever. Like you're you're attempting to contact the other realm with the use of drugs. And that's very common that shamanistic people do. Um, the reason in my book I almost exclusively call out psychedelics is that psychedelics are psychedelics. The reason people do psychedelics is for the spiritual purpose. So they're kind of pharmakia by definition. Um, so there, one of the things Michael Pollan talks about with psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in mushrooms, um, is he says that sooner or later, if you do enough mushrooms, sooner or later, you bump into something that's outside of you. So kind of that same thing I was saying about DMT. He says, sooner or later, you bump into the spiritual. And I think that's true with LSD. I think that's true with mescaline. I think that's true with magic mushrooms. I think that's true to some degree with heavy marijuana use. I think that's true, obviously, with DMT. Um, is that when, and pe that's the, why people do these things, is they're doing it 
for a spiritual purpose. They're doing it because it makes them better people. They're doing it because it helps them see God, doing it for so they can see the meaning of the universe. Like these are the phrases they use. These are the purposes that they have. And so they're doing pharmacia. And what I point out in my book is like, um, I had some confessions in there when I was young and dumb, I did psychedelics and I didn't see entities when I did, I did LSD and I, I didn't see entities when I did it, but I did have a spiritual uh, experience and I did come out thinking that I understood the universe and the, mm -hmm. those things. And what I point out in my book is that in modern day language, when I say I had a spiritual experience, if I said that in a room of 50 normal people, they would say, oh, that's so sweet. That's nice that you had a spiritual experience. And everybody, our, our spiritual in our mind is a synonym for good. What I point out in the book is that in the ancient world, they'd be like, what spirit? Was it good or bad? Like, what kind of spirit did you have a spiritual experience with? And I think that's the kind of skepticism and critical mind we need to have. So I, seeing the entities is particularly creepy, right? So like when you're actually talking to something that's telling you to do something, especially if it's telling you to sacrifice somebody or do, do something evil, that's particularly creepy. Um, but just having that experience of like, oh, now I understand the universe. Now I understand that it doesn't matter what religion you follow. It's just like, we're all one, right? Now I, I've got it. You know, like that can be just as spiritual and just as harmful in theory, like I mean, it, was, it could it could lead people astray as much as actually talking to a, a spirit in that way. So, so would you constitute some of our modern day medicine in the category of pharmacia? Yeah, that's a topic I intentionally avoided in the book, um, <laughs> just because it it I think it takes a lot more unpacking, and I think it takes a lot more. There's a lot more gray areas to it. So like if someone's like, hey, should I take psilocybin? Should I eat magic mushrooms to see into the other realm? That's an easy answer for me. And I, like my book kind of says why not to. And that's the the target in my book is like Joe Rogan promotes DMT every show. You know, like it's okay. crazy how often he does that. So you have this giant audience of young men that otherwise fairly conservative, they're thinking about trying ayahuasca or whatever. So that was kind of my target. But I do think, what you asked is a very good question is like, what about everything else? What about the fact that 30% of women are in some kind of psychological medicine? Um, what about, you know, what about the fact that we're putting our kids on Ritalin and ADHD medicine and all kinds of stuff is, and I, I think my answer to that is not necessarily a yes or no, although I definitely tend to the no, but my answer is, we need to be way more critical than we are. And right now we are, we're sleepwalking into it. We're allowing doctors that know nothing of the spiritual world to like make these decisions for us. And if we were to say, well, this helped me, will this cause me to see demons? The doctor would laugh at you, right? Cause the doctor doesn't believe in demons and the doctor. So like the, the, I, you know, my thought is like, it's something that we need to think about. And it's something that we need to say, you know, to what extent, like depression, for example, to what extent is that a spiritual problem? Are we dealing with a spiritual problem with drugs? And if so, it kind of falls under that category, right? So like, I think there's, um, I think there's more critical thought that needs to be done there. And, you know, my, my general thought is, especially with kids is please don't give them medicine, just let them grow up and let them, um, 
develop into adults um, at, at a minimum kids, but I think a lot of adults as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, something that's obviously being popularized in today um, and you've already touched on it a bit um, is marijuana. So I, I wanted to bring in this, this story because it's interesting because it's very, very rare that you see um, articles kind of talking about the potential downsides of marijuana usage um, I think it's becoming much more accepted in the similar category to alcohol, uh, where it should be recreational and, um, you know, it should be everywhere for, you know, adults to partake in. So um, wanted to jump into this one because I thought this was an interesting article. So uh, this is from uh, from uchicagomedicine.org. Does marijuana impact men's fertility and sexual health? Uh, with a nationwide boom in marijuana use in Illinois alone, sales of recreational adult use marijuana topped $1.3 billion in 2021. More scientific studies are being done to examine marijuana's health effects. One of the first to examine marijuana's impact on semen quality and male fertility was authored by University of Chicago medicine urologist Omar Rahim. The study found marijuana use negatively impacted male fertility. The data showed current or past marijuana users had more damaged sperm, lower sperm counts, and reduced semen volume. Many questions remain unanswered and more studies are needed, but marijuana's effects on sexual health is one of many topics men can discuss in a private setting at UChicago Medicine's new men's wellness clinic. Uh, skipping down here a bit. Raheem heads the clinic with cardiologist Michael Davidson and uh, endocrinologist um, an in, in endocrinologist. I don't even think I've heard that that field study before. Um, the team includes many other specialized UChicago medicine physicians and providers. We spoke with Raheem about his study and about what the new downtown men wellness clinic offers to men of all ages. What did your study find about marijuana's impact on male fertility? In the study of 409 young male patients seeking an infertility evaluation, we found that a certain part of the marijuana compound, CBD, which is very popular these days, had affinity to latch or bind to receptors on the sperm structure, altering its shape and function, which can ultimately decrease fertility in men. Interestingly, the negative impact on sperm function was seen in both current and past marijuana users. We don't know how long men need to stop using marijuana, a week, a month, in order to reverse sperm function. So more lasting studies are warranted to determine if marijuana effects are lasting. Does marijuana affect sperm count? Yes. According to the data in this study, marijuana decreased the volume of semen, sperm count, and altered the sperm's shape. So a lot there that we could go off of, but Lewis, what's your initial reaction to that article? Doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I think one of the things with marijuana is like how reckless, you know, you think about what it takes to get a drug approved in, um, in through the, uh, food and drug administration is like a giant process. Um, you think about like how hard we fought against smoking in this country and like how, you know, just years and years of fighting it. And we're just all of a sudden say, okay, everybody smoke marijuana is perfectly legal. You know, go, go for it. Um, without, you know, like all these studies and that's by no means the only study there's countless studies that were affect negatively affects your IQ and negatively affects your work ethic and like there's, um, causes obesity, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that, kind of just purely natural standpoint where I think it's you're taking a risk with something that sh hasn't been 
properly tested and does have all kinds of known side effects and could have much worse side effects. And we're testing kind of the whole population. I mean, the number of young people taking marijuana now is crazy. I mean, it's, it's gone up exponentially over the last 10 years, um, just at a growth rate that's, that's pretty frightening. So that's, uh, that's my initial thought. But I will say there's a deeper thing here with marijuana. Um, and it's brought up by Terrence McKenna. I'm listing all these druggies. Like my book is like heavily based on like um, guys that are deep into the drug industry um, and in the psychic kind of pro psychedelic side, Michael Pollan, um, Rick Strassman, but I, I mentioned uh, and Graham Hancock, et cetera. But like uh, Terrence McKenna is a big on promoting drugs. And one of the big thing that Terrence McKenna says about marijuana and he says it's a good thing. And he this is often said, Graham Hancock talks about this with other psychedelics like ayahuasca, is that it has a feminizing aspect to it. Mm -hmm. So Terrence McKenna says, we're, we're too macho. We, we've oppressed women. We have, uh, we're, our society is too patriarchal. Um, marijuana has a feminizing effect. It, will, it, it helps men see their feminine side. It helps... Um, kind of uh, create this this environment where change changes the nature of men where they're they're in Terrence McKenna's mind better people because they're more feminine um for me this study kind of matches up with that and I think it's terrible like I think the last yeah. thing in the world we need is is weaker feminized men but um <laughs> that's um I think for me the first thing that jumped out when I saw that study was oh yeah like that's what Terrence McKenna has been talking about. Yeah. The Renaissance of men commented in the chat saying, bro, I need marijuana to be creative. Which, <laughs> of course, he's being facetious. Yeah. Renaissance of men, Will, he's great, by the way. And yeah, he has he lots of really good things about this subject and actually pointed it out more to me than I knew before was just how there's a divine feminine in a lot of these psychedelics. Um, and mother ayahuasca I mentioned, and, and also like think of the iconography of the witch in the woods with the brew is almost always a female, um, yeah. uh, Graham Hancock talks about that as like the, the, the coven of witches was a female coven. Like the, the religion was a female religion. There's even people that point out that like when Paul was saying, I don't allow a woman to have authority. Part of the, what he was saying is don't be like the pagans, right? Because a lot yeah. of them had female authorities over them. So, um, so yeah, Will does a great job. He's, he's talked on that at length and hopefully I'm, I'm trying to convince him to write a book on it, but, um, it's, it's a very it, interesting Will. subject. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And Shara Joel, uh, she said in the chat, my dad smoked weed nearly on the daily between eight, the ages 11 and 26. It didn't affect his fertility. I'm one of eight, same two parents, but it definitely affected his brain. His thought process were his thought process were just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, obviously any kind of effect of any, any negative effect, a lot of times is a statistical effect. So it's hard to, hard to know, like smoking cigarettes, for example, you say, well, my dad was 99 and he died and he smoked cigarettes like a chimney his whole life. Well, okay. But that's one example, but you know, there's always a statistical thing there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting. The crazy part was that I, I've personally talked to a psychiatrist that um, says that 
most of almost 100% of the people that come in with major psychological problems like schizophrenia, bipolar, etc., were heavy pot users. And there is a tie in in some of the scientific literature about tying together pot use, heavy pot use and actual madness or actual uh, mental disorders. So <laughs> another another not not good thing about it. And also might tie into the whole thing you were talking about earlier with the, the parallels between the psychedelic user and the, and the, the madness. So, yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to jump back to a, a previous chat too, by uh, FEMA camp etiquette for dummies. Uh, he said in his book, new world order, the ancient plan of secret societies, William T still shows that America was called initially the land of the plum slash feathered serpents by the Indians of Peru. So that was kind of going off of our, our thoughts earlier um, regarding the theme that we see of the serpent. Um, yeah. What's interesting is, is uh, FEMA um, makes a point to, to bring up the book all about the New World Order. Um, so what I thought has been really interesting is, um, is uh, recently we've seen Robert Carhart Yaris, I believe is his, his name. He gave a presentation on psychedelics at the world economic forum. Um, so I have my theories. A lot of it has to do with uh, that article we just read and, and population control. But Lewis, I'd like to hear um, what do psychedelics have to do with the world economic forum? It's incredibly creepy, honestly. And I remember seeing those articles as well. Um, why are they doing it? Um, that's a big question, right? There is everything we just talked about with the feminizing effect. If that's your goal is to pacify and weaken a, a population, you know, there's there's an element to that. Um, but I also don't want to like discount the spiritual element. I think there's creepy spiritual stuff going on. And I don't necessarily mean it's like a group of people like, you know, intentionally doing it. But I do think from a demonic influence standpoint, there's sometimes it works through organizations it works through groups it works through globalist organizations where they'll they'll do those things um and so i i do think that shouldn't be discounted either um but it is it is strange um i will say i didn't touch on this at all in the book um because it was a giant rabbit hole i didn't want to go down and maybe i'll write on it in the future but um the level to which the cia pushed psychedelics on america is mm. mind-blowing i mean it pretty much was it was the cia that did it so i mean the um guy that's known as the johnny appleseed of lsd a guy named al hubbard um was almost certainly a cia agent and he would go around with um a suitcase full of lsd and give it to researchers give it to prominent celebrities give it to anybody that would take it and so there, I don't know what's going on, um, but I personally think there's some occult aspect to it. I don't know what it is, but um, I, there's something creepy going on. Hmm. Interesting. It's funny how those who want to mess with science the most are trying to seek out something that seems to give a spiritual connection. So I don't know, Michael, do you think that's maybe an attempt at filling a God-shaped hole? Well, certainly, there's a lot of reason why the the pharmacia is only referenced in the negative scripturally, where it's like, don't do this, stone the guy who does this. 
or uh, avoid all sorts of sorcery and things like this. So clearly the biblical initiative is to not do that. So it makes sense that the ways of the world would promote it just on the most basic black and white standard. But if you want to get into the detail and the minutia, like you're saying, um, placating people with the image of a perceived spirituality that is fulfilling, but that fulfillment is contingent upon addiction is a great way to enslave people. Well, <laughs> yeah, do with that what you will. <laughs> well, what's interesting is Renaissance of Man. He, he, uh, I threw up his chat while you were, uh, while you were going there. I'm talking about Operation Midnight Climax, and so I, I pulled this up here. So we're doing this on the fly. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be all right here in terms of what we see but um so this is from history.com so you know take that with however you will um <laughs> on april 10th 1953 alan duels the newly appointed director of the cia delivered a speech to a gathering princeton alumni though the event was mundane global tensions were running high the korean war was coming to an end and earlier that week the new york times had published a startling story asserting that America's POWs returning from the country may have been converted by communist brainwashers. Some G's were GIs were confessing to war crimes like carrying out germ warfare against the communists, a charge the U.S. categorically denied. Others were reportedly so brainwashed that they had refused to return to the United States at all. As if that weren't enough, the U.S. was weeks away from secretly sponsoring the overthrow of a democratically elected leader in Iran. Can't talk tonight, apparently. It's all the drugs. Uh, Duels had just become the first civilian director of an agency growing more powerful by the day, and the speech provided an early glimpse into his priorities for the CIA. In the past few years, we have become accustomed to hearing much of the battle for men's minds the war of ideologies, he told the attendees. I wonder, however, whether we clearly perceive the magnitude of the problem, whether we realize how sinister the battle for men's minds has become in Soviet hands, he continued. We might call it in its new form, brain warfare. So obviously that's, uh, we lost Lewis for a moment here, but let's get him back on screen here. Awesome. Yeah. Well, there's a lot there, and yeah, so I, I can on. give a yeah a little bit of overview of that program. It's super creepy, um, and the CIA does some things where they'll it's called the limited hangout, where they'll they'll admit to some bad things, and then as a way of covering up the really bad stuff. But uh, Operation Midnight Climax was a very very bad operation um, where they basically were testing LSD on people. Um, they were uh, getting uh prostitutes to drug johns in hotel rooms and then watching them through a two-way mirror to um evaluate like how they responded to the lsd and that kind of thing so just uh it, and i'm sure I'm, there's probably way worse than what i'm talking about and but it, yeah it kind of plays into everything i was saying about the cia hey, there's there's some creepy history there that is um is pretty interesting. Um, there's a book by, I think it's John O'Neill. It's called The uh, Chaos. Um, and it's about um, the uh, Charles Manson murders and how the CIA was involved in that. And part of that whole story was 
the MK Ultra program where the CIA was testing LSD on college students and practicing um, mind control efforts and that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's there's a big there's a reason I didn't get into it in my book. Yeah. It like <laughs> is very deep hole that you go down in, but um, it's very very interesting also. So, but in sequel to the book. Yeah, maybe, we'll, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Lewis, I know, I know that you don't have too much more time with us. So I wanted to ask you, um, your book is titled The Return of the Dragon. So obviously, um, the argument you're laying out is that the dragon either has returned or is starting to rise. Um, so first of all, what is the state of uh, the dragon's return? And what should we be doing to combat that? So it's not good. I mean, the the increase in people that do psychedelic drugs, do marijuana, do drugs for spiritual purposes is exploding right now. Um, if you look at polls, um, so it's interesting, like when I was a kid, I tell my kids, like when I was a kid, all the billboards said, don't do drugs. Now all the billboards say do drugs you know, come, come to our marijuana store. I live in Michigan. It's legal. And like every billboard is like, come here and do, do drugs. Um, but the acceptance rate is just skyrocketing. There's a reason why state after state after state is legalizing marijuana. Cause everybody is like, there's no problem with this. Um, I listed a poll in my book. That's probably out of date. Now it's probably even worse. Um, but it said, I think eight out of 10 people want it more legalized than it is, you know, either recreationally or for medical purposes or whatever. And usage lines are going along those same rates. And it's not just marijuana, although I think marijuana should be classified in kind of this pharmacia dangerous area. Um, but it's also harder stuff. People um, are doing magic mushrooms, uh, psilocybin, um, they're doing um, LSD, they're doing uh, mescaline, um, and they're doing uh, DMT. Thanks to Joe Rogan, largely um, DMT and ayahuasca has become extremely popular. Um, I was watching a podcast that was just like a bros comedy podcast. It wasn't Christian or anything, but the two guys were just talking, just regular guys. And they were talking about a party they went to and they were just talking about someone that was handing out mushrooms. And then they had a brief aside where they were like, oh yeah, mushrooms are so in now. Like everybody's doing mushrooms right now. And like, that was the conversation they had on that, that podcast. And um, I, you know, for me after writing this book, I'm like, holy crap, that's not good. Um, so yeah, when we think about like this trajectory that we're on, I mean, if pharmacia is what I say pharmacia is, and you're really interacting, we didn't fully get into my conclusion, but my argument is you're interacting with real entities that happen to not be good entities, which in the Christian world, we would call it demonic. And so if really people are opening themselves up to demonic entities by doing this, and it's growing as fast as it is, um, the fallout for this from a from a nation and a culture could be the worst possible thing. I mean, like as Christians, we talk about other cultural issues, like all the sexuality stuff and the abortion stuff. And I agree, those are giant concerns. Um, but this could be bigger than those. You know, like if you look at biblical warnings, like it's the biblical warnings are insane about this. And you look at what happened to societies that really got into shamanism, drugs for spiritual purposes, the guys that really scientifically perfected it were the Inca, were the Aztecs. Aztecs, 
they would eat these mushrooms. The Spanish have great accounts. I have an article on my website about this, but the Spanish have great accounts where they'll say they eat the mushroom and then they go crazy and then they go and practice cannibalism. Right? So like that's like the Spanish when they showed up to the Aztecs and the Aztecs would sacrifice 250,000 people. Maybe that's a high end estimate, but thousands and thousands of people every year. I mean, just like ridiculous um murder rates that they would do ripping people's hearts out and these are people that were doing pharmacia um and so to go back to the, what the bible says the bible says nahum 3 4 i believe um in the septuagint it says um it will it talks about blood being poured out on the nation and then it says pharmacia will lead whole nations astray and then um in the book of revelation it also talks about pharmacia leading whole nations astray so um I think the biggest danger in my mind of pharmacia, and so a lot of people would be like, well, I did DMT and I never wanted to murder anybody, or I did, you know, psilocybin, I never wanted to kill anybody. And my concern is for the individual. And I've known people that have done DMT that said that the, the entities were telling them to kill their friends. Um, I've known people that where they said the entities were telling them to kill themselves. So I do have concerns for the individual, but my bigger concern is for the whole nation because that's what revelation talks about that's what nahum talks about that's what other passages talk about and if you think about like a whole it's one thing for one weirdo to be controlled by a demon right because we all can say hey you're acting crazy cut it out you need to get help or whatever we can lock the person up if they start getting violent but a whole nation goes astray a whole nation starts being influenced and look out right like that's where it's like yeah, of course we're doing sacrifices. It helps the sun God. And, you know, the sun wouldn't come up if we didn't do these sacrifices, right? Like there's this, these assumptions that can get built in if everybody's doing it. If it, if there's nobody around to say, hey, that's crazy. What you guys are doing is crazy. Like there, that's in my mind, the real danger. And if I could just say one last thing, when you think, think about us um, as a country and we say, well, we would never sacrifice people. We do have abortion and if you think about where abortion came from, when it came about, and it came about, came from feminism, feminism and Margaret yeah. Sanger, and it came from in the 1960s, going into the 70s, when everybody was doing marijuana, everybody was doing LSD, everybody was doing practicing pharmacia. That's when it all came about. And it's a, that's a, in my mind, like in my book, I asked, I mentioned that just, in passing it's not a major theme but i asked does the dragon still have a hunger for babies right like because there's there's it's it's more than a coincidence in my mind um margaret sanger who you mentioned her lover and um mentor that actually helped her set up planned parenthood was a guy named havelock ellis havelock ellis was perhaps the pioneer on psychedelics in the western world mm. um where he did all kinds of experiments on mescaline, all can, wrote all kinds of papers on on having psychedelic trips. So um, the the tie there is not incidental; it's a very direct uh, direct tie. Hmm. Hmm. So give us maybe a little bit of encouragement before you before you head out. Just given <laughs> given that this dragon is probably hungry, and this dragon <laughs> is. Uh, on the rise and probably growing yeah. in strength as we speak. So the encouragement I have just since writing this book is how many people are, are realizing this. I feel like there's an awakening 
of people. Um, when I first started writing the book, people were like, oh, you're crazy. Now I'll post stuff on it and people are like, yeah, I've always thought that or whatever. They're like, So <clears throat> I feel like consciousness kind of has changed where at least in the Christian world, if not also in kind of the, the manosphere conservative world, um, I feel like there's a little bit of a an openness to the fact that this could have dark spiritual consequences. Um, so I think that's good. Um, my other encouragement is just kind of my Christian optimism where I, I think ultimately the, the serpent does get trampled by Jesus, right? Like there is this, that's the promise in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, right? There's this smashing of the serpent that will take place um, in you know, the book of Revelation, it talks about that, you know, the serpent being chained. And so like, we know the end, it will will work out. Um, I closed my book, the last chapter is called um, St. George and the Way, I think St. George and the Way Forward is the title of the last chapter. But St. George um, is um, the patron saint of England, famous for fighting the dragon. And if you read the actual myth or maybe it was real story of St. George where he went in and this dragon was sacrificing, requiring sacrifices. And if, if people didn't um, give the dragon sacrifices, it would destroy their city. It would ruin their, their lives, destroy their crops. And so people would give these human sacrifices and George came in and George um, defeated the dragon with the sign of the cross. And then, um, led the dragon like a dog in and slayed the dragon for the people um, after they converted to Christianity. And so there's like this vision forward for us, which is like, there's, there's a spiritual answer to a spiritual problem. And I think that um, we, I, you know, I, I trust that that could happen. I, I don't think in any way that the battle is lost. Um, but I do think I do think the alert needs to be called at this point. I think the one of our walls has collapsed and the, the enemy's coming in. So we we better uh, rally the troops and and do something about it. So awesome. Well, thank you, thank you, Lewis. We really appreciate that last bit of encouragement. And you heard him, everyone. Rally the troops. So thank you for your time, Lewis. I know you got to get going. You've been extremely generous. Um, yeah. Where can people so find you and keep up with everything you're doing? Um, so uh, my Substack is Lewis Ungit, and Lewis is spelled with an E. Ungit is U-N-G-I-T. Um, LewisUngit.substack.com. Um, I mentioned articles. I post. I did so much work on this book that I had a lot of stuff I had to cut from the book because I wanted it to be readable and not like 800 pages or whatever. So um, I posted a bunch of that stuff on my um, on my website. You can check out about the Aztecs and stuff. And then just check out the book. There's like an audible version of this book um, as well. Um, but there's a, a Kindle version, paperback. Get the paperback so that um, if... Uh, they try and ban ban it you can yeah. uh, still have your copy but um but the audible version is good too and so you can check those out and those are just on amazon awesome well thanks so much Peace. for your time lewis yeah thanks guys appreciate it well michael let's debrief for a moment here can i share so, something that i was looking over before please. we go into debrief mode please i know we we kind of came to the, the joyful conclusion, but I'm going to dive back into the misery for a second. Perfect. Yeah. I'd be disappointed if you didn't. <laughs> yeah. I was looking at Nahum chapter three, like he mentioned in the context of the, the, uh, 
pharmacia that he was discussing in the Septuagint, um, as was mentioned before, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's it's quoted in the New Testament, which is why we like to look at it as a reliable source as well mm-hmm. for the record. But later in the chapter, chapter three of the prophet Nahum, Nahum's admonishing um, Nineveh specifically, uh, talking about the horrors of Nineveh and its its idolatry and um, the evil of its of its whoring itself out to the nations. And in verse eight, he says, "Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile, the Nile River, with water around her?" And it describes the area more. And then verse ten says, "Yet she became an exile; she went into captivity." Listen carefully here. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Mm. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. Hmm. Wow, <laughs> that kind of hits hits nail on the head for a lot of things that will with Renaissance of men is combating a lot of things that yeah. we are combating, and a lot of what Lewis was discussing. So, talk about warnings that are fairly transparent. Um, and yet the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So, those who are being saved. Yeah. Is the power of God. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Especially the part about the honorable men being in change. Yep. <laughs> it's like, my goodness. Cause as I mean, I mean, there's so many elements to that. First of all, um, mm-hmm. we already talked about marijuana usage and its effect on, um, Fertility, uh, at least based on that study, um, they did say that more studies need to be done. So who knows? Um, but uh, beyond the actual, you know, fertility aspect, if what Lewis was saying was true, which I have heard that as well, and I meant to bring that up, um, you know, the marijuana potentially feminizes men. What did you think about that? It's interesting. You know, feminization can be measured by archetypes in psychology, you know, like, Dr. Jordan Peterson will talk about agreeableness being a feminine trait and uh, different aspects of sentimentality and things like that being effeminate. Oftentimes, and I think this may be the case in this context, femininity can often be regarded as the absence of masculinity. And I wonder if that's not... Uh, having to do with what we're discussing in this. It's not just that, you know, I hate to say that, oh, it's a negative thing, femininity, but because I, I, I mean to say femininity is a beautiful, wonderful thing that is needed and righteous right. unto God among the women of God. That's being the key so word. Femininity is not in itself a negative aspect of existence. Lord knows we need it desperately, but we also need masculinity. And um, typically, I, I don't know the, the clinical data on this. I need to look into it more so. But in that article that you referenced earlier, it had talked about sperm count being altered by the use of marijuana. And typically when sperm count is being impacted, 
that's taking place in the testes, the testes that are producing those sperm and their, their functional ability for reproductive resources. The testes also are talking about endocrinology. We were talking to mention that very briefly. It's a study of hormones and how hormones are impacting the endocrine system within your body. Hmm. Well, thank you for clarifying reason, that for me, by the way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The reason that men have an excess of testosterone in compared to females, it's not that females do not have testosterone. Females, in fact, have more testosterone than they do estrogen, yet they have more estrogen than men have of estrogen, and men have more testosterone than women have of testosterone. The large reason for that is that the testes secrete that, that hormone into our bloodstream so the men can have heightened testosterone levels, causes hair loss, causes increased muscularity and strengthening, it causes facial and body hair in other places you know we know what that does on a biological level but it also has psychological influence all that to say if marijuana use is decreasing testicular viability for increased sperm count or rather a decrease of sperm count in this case it could also correlate with the decrease of hormone production for for um um, the hormone I'm talking about, good lord, um, masculinity, testosterone. Just, testosterone. Thank you. I totally lost track of that. We're on a roll tonight. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, if there is a decrease in testosterone, testosterone is also gets a bad rap for causing men to be more volatile, to become violent, to become aggressive by nature. Which, yeah, in, in essence it does. And we have the examples of quote-unquote roid rage of um, synthetic testosterone, testosterone abusers having increased violent spells and being in domestic abuse situations because of that. But in the absence of testosterone levels that are adequate for male development come feminine, uh, what would be perceived as feminine expressions of psychological behavior mm. all right that was way wordier than it needed to be but <laughs> yeah all that to say marijuana I, I think it makes sense that marijuana could reduce masculine behavior because of those biological factors yeah and it is really interesting because um i grew up in washington state and washington and colorado were the first two states to legalize recreational marijuana use and uh ironically the the year or maybe not ironically but uh the year that that um, legalization happened uh, both states um played each other at the super bowl so of course it was the two states <laughs> legalized marijuana and went together and had a super bowl so that was a uh, comedic on the part of uh, our creator perhaps um <laughs> so uh but uh what's interesting is is actually my wife and I have talked about this many times, but now we've moved, uh, we've moved far east, and um, a lot of the west coast and just the west, um, yeah, the the western states, um, really have a completely different culture of um, childlessness, um, 
Peter Pan syndrome where people don't want to grow up, um, especially a lot of the men, um, but women too. And it's just interesting. Obviously, there's many, many uh, factors that could go into that kind of culture. But um, one of those factors could very well be marijuana usage, because um, a lot of the states that picked up the, the mantle after Washington and Colorado was Oregon and California, and I believe Arizona very recently. Um, past two like, years or so. Yeah, past two years or so. Um, my guess would be the only ones that have not legalized it. And I don't even fully know. I'd have to, I'd have to fact check this and we don't have time to get into all the nitty gritty, but, um, but I, I'm, I'm assuming Utah probably doesn't at this time. Um, and Idaho is probably a question mark. Um, I think Idaho is good with it. Last I checked, Utah was the only holdout, but I could be wrong. Yeah. And you, and you may very well be correct on that, but I find that interesting because of course it's just anecdotal. Um, I'm just kind of theorizing here, but that is, that is just one of maybe many factors that has caused that complete culture shift from the West coast states and, uh, slightly inward to, um, some of the, the states and more of the, the, the Southeast. Um, I don't know if you had any, any thoughts on that. Well, I might argue a little bit just to say that fatherlessness and, what you like to call Peter Pan syndrome of, of kind of a failure to launch in life of men becoming complacent in their comfortability. Um, that's not isolated to the West by any stretch of the imagination. Think right. of the, the degradation of Michigan was a horrible experience of fatherlessness and crime of men failing to rise to the occasion for, their families and the responsibilities that they were required for. So that's just one example, but that that is rampant in the culture. I think perhaps we have the privilege, you and I each in our individual cities that we live in are somewhat isolated within the goodness of family oriented rural communities, but pretty much anywhere there's a big city hub, there's a wealth of crime, fatherlessness and complacency and drug abuse. So yeah, I would, I would hesitate to isolate that to the West, but that doesn't necessarily deny the correlation that you're discussing because primarily the rural communities and uh, Christian communities that are denying drug use, at least, outwardly are going to be communities that participate in more family oriented stability and not abandoning families. Um, it'd be interesting if we could see divorce rates on this or fatherlessness rates on this, or even, you know, like they're talking about fertility rates in this clinical study, but there's a lot of social aspects that I think we're speculating on. But it'd be interesting to see clinical data if that were able to be accessible, but I'm sure it would not be accessible because any Gallup study would <laughs> would not exactly encourage people to confess their drug abuse. Yeah. <laughs> and what's interesting, what you said about big cities too, um, I was looking it up because I just wanted to confirm um, I had my authors straight. I was getting people mixed up, but James Fenimore Cooper, um, he wrote, I believe it was not in the last of the Mohicans, but I believe it was in uh, either the sequel or the prequel um, where he talked about how when men move to cities, um, there is a distinct uh, lack of noticing God that goes on. 
Um, whereas he was saying, if you are um, sailing in the ocean, you're very aware of God. <laughs> and um, it's just that idea of it's so easy to congregate. And when, um, you know, the Lord made us very creative individuals. And um, when, when human beings gather and congregate together, they are a powerful force. And I think that a mm. lot of the, um, the ailments of life um, are less obvious when you're in a, a very urban setting. Um, aside from maybe uh, nowadays, we're seeing a lot of the decay in these cities, we could argue uh, the opposite, but as typical, um, it really does uh, push people away from, from God. And it's just an interesting case too, because then we can get into the, the, the tower of, of Babel and, and uh, whether or not we should be congregating these massive cities this way, or whether or not we should be, you know, um, spreading out and, inheriting the earth but uh that's a there's whole a, other thought line <laughs> yeah there's another aspect to this conversation that i didn't get to get into with lewis and i know we don't have a lot of time to build this out right now but for the viewer ponder for yourself um we discussed how users of psychedelic drugs have an experience of spirituality and Lewis even said from his own perspective came away from that spiritual experience with a belief that they understood it all. And what you're describing as experiencing God in a meaningful way is like being in the middle of the ocean, for example, is not a transcendent understanding necessarily of the spiritual realm as much as it is a fairly existential understanding of how utterly insignificant and vulnerable you are <laughs> in right. comparison to the creation itself. And, you know, Paul writes to the Romans when he's starting to address the, the sinfulness in chapter one for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that, those who see them are without excuse. So part of the conversation that I wanted to build out with, with Lewis that we didn't have time to, and the conversation didn't go this way is that he talks about the, the spirituality of experiencing drugs. And he talks about the prohibition of drug use by the Christian ethic what I would say is the next logical step in the conversation is therefore, how should Christians experience spirituality? We're given a lot of instruction through scripture of that for sure. But I want to be very, very clear here in our podcast, in this conversation that the spirituality that we have been called to is that, that, that Paul mentions here in Romans, as I just read, it is not of the, the pharmacia or pharmacia um, experiential induction into spiritual realms. It should not be through mediums or necromancers or witchcraft or occult. Instead, God has given us access to the spirituality that is most advantageous for us. As he says in, in John chapter 14, when Jesus is, speaking to his disciples he says it's good that i leave you because when i leave i will send my helper my paraclesis my 
it's a, the Greek, my, mm. my helper, my assistant for you. And he will teach you what I'm not able to teach you. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, here. Because Christ bodily with his disciples was subject to human limitation in some form. And in essence, what he's saying is when I send my spirit into you, there will no longer be such limitations. You can experience spiritual satisfaction and growth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that spirit is a spirit of truth that is given to us through the grace of God by our faith in him. And that is, I think, the, the hope that we hold to as Christians that, Lord willing, we would abstain from from drug abuse and seeking spirituality by chemical enhancement. And instead we could seek out spirituality through the Holy spirit that has been promised to us through faith. Yeah. So Amen. I just thought that was an important part of the conversation to add in. Cause we talked about why Christians shouldn't do it. We talked about the perceived benefits that people would have for experiencing these spiritual aspects, but it's important to know that we are not in need of those chemical alterants in order to experience spirituality in the way that God has shaped us to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an important, important point to end on. Yeah. But let's go, let's jump into the chat real quick here as we, as we bring it on home. Mm -hmm. uh, FEMA camp etiquette for dummies said in Jewish mysticism, because I'm not going to try to pronounce that. <laughs> there are multiple parallel dimensions in our physical plane called Asiah. Asiah in Hebrew, literally the word of the world of action. And uh, I believe he sent a second follow-up here. He said, Jewish mystics don't require psychedelics to encounter these dragon-like entities. They encounter them via astral projection and consider them not to be malevolent. Hmm. Sounds like some Doctor Strange stuff there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's just where my mind went. Pop culture yep. reference, folks. <laughs> yep. But uh, Shara said, Colorado here. Our state went down the toilet after the Californians invaded. I've watched it unfold in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. oh. That's what they're saying in Idaho and in Arizona and in Utah. And, and in everywhere else of the world, pretty much. <laughs> Minus maybe Florida. <laughs> yeah because californians well some of them do want to go there yeah but... unfortunately yeah and then mm -hmm. uh richard richard henry said evening hi richard evening, not sure richard. if you're still with us but thanks for joining us at the at the end feel free to jump back and uh, watch through the interview we do with lewis and get a copy of his book and uh, feel free to share your thoughts in the in the comments um like thank you everyone like and subscribe hit the bell notifications you don't miss anything we are yeah. gonna always be here monday nights for our live streams or and if you're listening to the playback thank you so much for listening feel free to give us five stars on whatever platform you're listening to we appreciate your support michael where can people find you getting back in the swing of things i'm studying um, the perfective aspect of greek nomenclature excellent well, thank you, everyone. We have been Forge and Anvil. Have a good one.